G'day and welcome to the potty in which I connect with some of the most influential guests from across Australia and the globe to share their very inspirational stories. I was born with cystic fibrosis, a chronic illness in which I was told would most certainly ruin my life. But like many of the incredible humans that I have on this show, I'm on a mission to prove that we aren't defined by our circumstances, but rather how we choose to respond to them. I'm your host, the captain of the ship and the man in charge, Bradley J. Drybra, and this is a lot to talk about. G'day, g'day. Welcome back to the show here with Andrew Hamilton, comedian. Um, spent a bit of time in the big house. So I'm sure we'll hear a few stories about that. Um, upcoming author, really excited. We're just chatting a little bit off mic about his upcoming book, which will be out hopefully at some point next year, but also just a guy who is an incredible storyteller. I've had some good laughs watching some of his content, had some good laughs listening to him um, behind the mic on some interviews and really excited to have him here today. So from your home, your car, or wherever you are, give a very warm welcome to the man himself. How are you, mate? G'day, Bradley. Thanks for having me, man. This is a pleasure. Mate, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm always keen to review, I guess, or or explain to the audience where I first come across a guest. And I think for you, it was, I'd done a, a collaborative post on Instagram with good mate of mine, Brett Canellan, and yep. I seen your name come up in my notifications. You'd like that post. And I clicked into your profile and straight away, I think the first um, post in the grid was like um, X mushroom kingpin um, now stand up comic. <laughs> and I was like, fuck, that's not something I expected to see. And so <laughs> I started scrolling through some of your stuff and your face was familiar from, I think I've seen a bunch of these, I don't even know what you'd call them, but like group, um, almost like group, like interviews, posts on TikTok where you just share jokes and like have a laugh. Yep, that's the channel Yeah Mad TV that I'm part of. It's just uh, a bunch of comedians just sitting in a room telling each other dumb jokes off the internet, and that that channel's kind of blown up. But yes, the the old um, mushroom dealer to comedian is a uh, is a bit of a cliche. It's just <laughs> it's such a common story, Bradley. You know, <laughs> is it? <laughs> maybe maybe we've been living in different worlds then. Uh... <laughs> no, yeah, it, it has uh, it has been pretty unique, and, and it's helped me to kind of. Uh, stand out a bit in a field of many, many, many uh, up and coming comedians in the country. So, I mean, yeah, that certainly uh, helped, but it's been, yeah, it's been a, a pretty crazy ride and I'm enjoying every minute of it. I guess there's so many places that we could start with this interview and, and I'm sure we'll get to all of them, maybe in no particular order, but I find it interesting to chat to people who have used, and, and I think comedians are an extreme example of this, but, you know, people who have used humor as a way to not always escape, but rather cope through some some serious challenges in their life. Would you yeah. say that comedy or, or, you know, almost being a comedian has been a part of your life forever? Or is it something more recent that you've used to, to overcome some of the shit that happened in your life? I think it's always been there. I've always uh, had a, a big sense of humor and been a big laugher and, and prankster and joker. And I'd always wanted to do stand-up comedy um, pretty much as long as I can remember, but I was just too much of a chicken shit to try. And I also, when I was younger, I, I didn't know like what I would talk about. Like I would have, if I had to try to do comedy when I was younger, it would have been a whole bunch of jokes about wanking and dicks and yeah. um, you know, <laughs> just the usual stuff you hear from 20-year-old blokes at an open mic comedy night. It would have been nothing special. 
and maybe I would have tried it and failed and, and been discouraged. So um, I feel very lucky that I started late and, and I started, I guess, because of seeing the the lighter side of uh, prison because when I was I was locked up in 2021 for four months in remand which is for anyone who doesn't know that's basically when you um, before you get sentenced if they think you're gonna probably be going to prison they'll put you into unsentenced prison which is called remand and so I got sent there to Parkley prison and then Long Bay jail and um, yeah there were just so many times where something funny would happen in prison and because of your surroundings it just didn't feel like a place where humor should exist so it made it 10 times funnier right it just made it so much funnier because you're around like there'd be a guy in the tower with a fucking rifle and there'd be barbed wire fences and walls and a whole bunch of guys in green um and next thing you know you're laughing at some dumb joke and then you remember <laughs> oh yeah i'm in prison <laughs> so i guess that went a long way for me remembering um, or just, I guess, appreciating the value of humour and remembering that that's always something I'd wanted to do. But I, for some reason, you know, sometimes in life we have these dreams and for one reason or another, we just don't pursue them. And so I just made a promise to myself. I was like, when, when you get out, you're going to do it. Um, you know, you're going to start from scratch and you're just going to go and, and do this because, um, you know, I mean, one, I was like... <laughs> I'm already at rock bottom. Like how, how much worse can it get? And then I think, secondly, I, I there was something in me that just felt like I know this is gonna, for some reason, this is going to work. And so, yeah, I got out and I was under house arrest for quite a while when I, when I first got out um, on bail before I got sentenced. And I had to bring my mum along to my first ever open mic comedy night because I was still not allowed to leave the house unless I was in the company of my parents who are in their seventies. So my mum had to come to an open mic comedy night and I also had to be home by like 9.30 or 10 o'clock or something. So I had to, uh, it was one of these uh, open mic comedy nights where you, everyone goes and they put their name in a bucket and they get, draw, they get drawn out for when it's their turn. But I also had to ask if I could go on early at my first ever comedy night because I had to get home for my curfew. And so, <laughs> you know, it's not the best way to make, make new friends when like all these guys like think, oh, hey man, like the, the, no one gets special treatment here. You you got to wait your turn, and then suddenly I'm like, oh well, I've got to get home before I <laughs> my, my bail curfew. And then everyone thought that was funny, so they let me on, and I did five minutes, and that was yeah, that was my first time of doing ever ever doing comedy. It was it was life changing. I I was shitting myself the whole time, but I got the jokes out. I got some laughs, and then luckily soon after that, my bail conditions were relaxed, so I didn't have to bring my mum along anymore. But I still had a curfew, so I. I got guys got used to me coming to shows, but then having to go on in the first half, and they were really cool about that. So I, I found the comedy scene in Sydney to be so supporting and embracing of, um, yeah, my background and, and what I was trying to do. Man, I love to hear that. I find it very interesting to listen to comedians, and I, I think for a few reasons. I think because it takes it takes actually stripping your ego to be able to get on stage in the first place. Like I would say that in many professions, it, it allows you to stroke your ego by the way in which you control it. But comedy is one of those things in which you really have to give up and cede control every time you step on stage, because you do not know how it's going to be received. How was it for you to embrace that and to be able to get up there and just be a little bit carefree? 
Well, uh, I mean, I, I first I thought that I was going to get booed off stage because I was getting up to do jokes about getting arrested and going to prison for being a drug dealer. So I was like, I don't know how this is going to go. I thought my parents were going to think it was a terrible idea. I thought they were going to hate it. They they were actually very supportive. God bless them. And people started to really like the jokes. I guess um, I was being very self-deprecating with a lot of the jokes. I did jokes about the um, the Raptor squad, the organized crime squad telling me I had a tiny cock and things like that. And, um, you know, so I think because of the way I, I, I approached the jokes, I got people on board. And I, and, I, and then as I started venturing out beyond just open my comedy nights where you're essentially just performing to, to other comedians and actually doing shows in front of real audiences, I think what I found was I think a lot of people get that so many guys that do crime and go to prison keep going back, that it becomes a cycle, that I think – just seeing someone just trying to do something different, I think, was refreshing to people. So I, I found that a lot of people uh, really got behind that. And so I'd have so many people come up to me and be like, good on you, mate. So good to see you doing this. Or like, um, yeah, it, that, that I could shake off my prison experience and, and whatever you know bad stuff I was doing before and just try and devote my time to do, doing something that was positive for me and for others. Because if, you, if, if you're making people laugh, that's a, that's a good thing. Bloody oath. And look, I think I'm, I'm a massive believer in taking ownership of whatever you're going through or whatever you're experiencing in life. And sometimes those things are in our control. Like, you know, it's, it's fair to say that you knew what you were doing when you went to the world of, of mushroom sales. Yeah, um, That's one way of putting it. You know, there's definitely times in life where things are completely out of our control and we get blindsided by adversity and, and we have to choose to respond to it as well. But I think that you can respect anyone who chooses to own where they're at to accept the situation and fucking do something about it. And so I think that's why so many people have gotten behind you and supported what you're doing now, but let's like take a few steps back, sure. I guess, to talk about when you hear about drug dealers who get put in the big house and, and get taken down, usually their stories of um, cocaine dealers, ice dealers, heroin dealers, and they tend to be the big drug stories in Australia, those really destructive drugs that we often hear about that I would say have a really visual effect on the people who take them and use them and abuse them. You know, it's, it's pretty easy to pick out a heroin or ice addict and, and it, you can see how damaging it is. But mushrooms is one of those funny things that is often a part of the joke. Like it's, you know, and I think you mentioned in one of your interviews, it would have been the Gary Jubilant one from memory, that it was quite funny to a lot of other people who were in prison that you found yourself there yeah. um, as a mushroom dealer. Yeah, well, I mean, into that? to be clear, so, I mean, mushrooms was the one that I was best known for. That was the one um, that we had kind of a monopoly on. But I was, over time, I did venture into selling other stuff. I was selling acid and MDMA and ketamine and cocaine as well. But the one which I was um, best known for was was the mushrooms. But uh, I certainly was selling all those. But there the were ones that I would never have sold, like ice or, or heroin or GHB, just because I um, I thought that they were just too dangerous, both to the people that, that, that buy them. I, I, I think that they're a completely different kettle of fish. They're, you know, really, really nasty drugs. Um, and I also, uh, I, I was just uh, trying to enable people to have functional, fun drug experiences at music festivals and parties and things that I enjoyed doing myself. That was kind of um, how I, I put it into a bucket. But, um, 
yeah, in terms of, of going to prison, the, the the majority of the ones were, were psychedelics, and they were not the one. Most guys that are in there are, are in there for ice is probably the number one. Um, ice it was probably not only in terms of selling it, but also guys in prison for trying to fund their own ice addictions, right? Um, so that's the the one I think that touches the most crime. Then probably heroin. Then, then coke uh, are probably the main three. So ones like, um, yeah, MDMA, mushrooms, uh, acid, ketamine were, were, were are definitely exotic in there, and particularly the mushrooms, which is the one I got caught with the most of. Uh, that yeah, guys found that funny, and uh, <laughs> they even joked like, "Oh mate, when you get out, the cops will give you the mushrooms back. Like it's no big deal." <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. It's it's a funny thing because, well, well, funny is one way of putting it, but I think what you mentioned in um, one of your interviews that I heard is that you didn't really come from a life in which painted a picture that this was what your future or now past would have looked like. Totally. You know, you come from a pretty good upbringing by the sounds and were quite well educated and, and had quite a good job. At what point in time do you decide that you're going to maybe go down a more risky path and you know was that a, a matter of weighing up what the risk to reward look like for you was it a matter of you know an insecurity or trying to you know trying to prove a point to someone outside of your own circle like what did that look like i guess it's like that um that boiling frog analogy you know that if you put a chuck a frog in a pot of boiling water it'll jump out but if you slowly turn up the heat over time it'll it'll just sit in there and cook and i guess that's the way it went for me, I was involved in, in selling drugs for 15 years. And at the, at the time, it was just like a little side hustle just to make a couple of bucks to fund my gambling addiction or um, just to, like, pay for a couple of extra beers at the pub. Um, but it was also just mushrooms. For so long, it was just mushrooms. So I didn't feel like, from my experience, both either using them or selling them, that they were a bad thing, that they were – I didn't think that they were inherently evil. And I didn't the, – the laws didn't really make sense to me. So I was just like um, – you know, whatever, I'm not going to particularly obey that law. But it also didn't feel like it was uh, – the mushrooms were, were high on any police radars. So it cons I, I, I consider it to be pretty low risk. And I was only really selling to, like, friends and friends of friends. So it seemed like a really um, – a low-risk, um, high-reward kind of thing that over time – just got bigger and bigger but you're right I, I mean I went to a private school my parents sent me to a private school for high school and I and I went to a university and then I um was working a, a, a job in, in public relations which I was very good at for a long time and at the same time I was just selling mushrooms because I guess I mean the money was obviously a big draw card but then also I just I knew how good they were I knew I, I had such a good time on mushrooms and I liked to be able to facilitate that fun for other people I liked to be the guy the, the hookup right and so that itself is is alluring um and so I guess that over time it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and um you know my uh, my own addictions to coke got bigger and and my lifestyle got more and more crazy and and yeah all these things happen over such a gradual period that um it's not until you get arrested or something happens and you step out of it and you're like wow that actually got quite crazy um but at the time you're too close to it to really realize the insanity it's an interesting conversation for me i think because i i often think about is someone like i I've never taken drugs in my life. So what a loser. To, yeah. <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Right, it's 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 such a it's such a cliche though, isn't it? That like that's like goody two shoes. Fuck, that's so funny. Um, <laughs> Sorry, mate, you left the door wide open. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. It's um, but it's so true, right? It's it's like that real goody two shoes, and and I guess part of that was growing up with a dad who was a copper and a pop who had been a copper for years. I think the other part of it is like having like a health condition like cystic fibrosis i took 50 tablets a day so i was like yeah, fuck, i do so much to keep this in check like i'm mm. not going to do anything to risk it and and i often think though that like because i almost I, I guess i was in a position where i had a lot of reasons not to right that i i never felt pressured to go and like experiment in any way shape or form yeah but i know so many people who did i would say it's actually more common i would think for people to experiment with drugs than it is for them not to, especially in their early, early teens, or sorry, late teens, early twenties. Like I'd say it's a pretty common thing. Yeah. But then I think about the cost of it. So we talk about how for you on the outside, you looked at mushrooms as, as a way to have a bit of fun. And then you looked at selling mushrooms as a way to facilitate a bit of fun. And I think that on one end, you know, that it's wrong and you might question and is the law right in this case? You know, Gary talks about that a lot now. And, you know, we've spoken about Gary a little bit on and off the pod because we've had recent connections with him. He speaks about his experience being a copper and then the experience of being criminally charged and how the law isn't so black and white anymore. There's that gray area. So I guess yeah. for you, you, you looked at that as it fits in the gray area. But then I wonder after time, the fact that you're you're compromising somewhat on what you think may be morally correct then allows you to make more compromises as time goes on. And all of a sudden you're sucked into this vortex of, oh, now I've gone a little bit too far. And maybe I haven't, I guess, maybe I haven't been true to my own ethos about life. I mean, it's, it's a complicated conversation because with, with these drugs, I mean, you look at that now, um, <clears throat> mushrooms and MDMA, which are two of the main ones I got caught with, are now being decriminalized. They're, they're now legal for medicinal use right mm. in australia so um that that changes the game a bit and and says that look there's there's increased understanding about the um the the, the benefits that psychedelics can provide people and i used to sell um drugs to I mean people that were using them recreationally but people that weren't uh, that were using them for really beneficial stuff as well there was a guy who um was a ex-british soldier that would buy mdma off me because he used it um for psychotherapy because he had ptsd and that was um he found that that was the only way he, he could have breakthroughs in his treatment um there were people that would buy mushrooms off me and go and have like life-changing experiences they go out into nature and um they'd have some kind of epiphany that would um you know lead them on to whatever you know career choice or whatever they were or a, or a decision on their relationships all kinds of amazing things and i'm like this does not marry up with like my, my with, with the, the laws that we have in this country right my experiences so I guess that helped me to justify what I was doing in my head because I was like, the laws don't match what I'm seeing in the world. And yeah. I fully get what you're saying there. And I think it's interesting if you look now with, obviously with hindsight, hindsight's this beautiful thing because you can look back on an experience and make a judgment call at a later date. But at what point in time do you think that what you morally believe to be right and wrong now like that line was crossed was it your own personal use of something like cocaine which got out of control or yeah i mean else? that 
That definitely. I mean, there's a couple of things there. I mean, one, one, I, I, I essentially was so arrogant that I said the law doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to break it, right? So that's one thing. I don't. No one has the right to just go and do that just because they disagree with the law. Um, but that's that was like my rationale at the time. Um, I think that yeah, over time, the my the fact that I had the, I had all these drugs around. The one that really screwed me was cocaine. I. I could have the other ones around and I didn't need to have them all the time, but Coke, I was just smashing it 24-7. I was just, I, like, I was fat and unhealthy and couldn't get an erection and I was just like, I was just a mess of a man. And, um, you know, and obviously, it, obviously that's why the copper who fucking <laughs> arrested you, yeah, he didn't really hit you where it hurts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't wrong. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the, those kind of, it, it, it was a bit of a mess. And, and then I also like, it does take a toll on your soul being a, a drug dealer or any kind of criminal when you just, you're constantly having to lie to, you, you, you must, you've got to have this whole list of lies you're saying all the time, just in terms of where you are and who you're with and where your money comes from and all this kind of stuff, which, um, I found over time, um, became quite a burden, uh, on your, on, on my soul. And so, yeah, it, it, it definitely um, was something which um, I now now that I'm out, I'm out of it, I just feel light as a feather. Um, you know, now I'm a I always tell people I'm a broke comedian living with my parents and I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. Right. Um, because, yeah, I just had gone down this messy, messy path. And look, I, I, I think perhaps in, in um, you know, years to come we'll see what happens with with those other drugs i don't think that they're inherently evil um i think that they uh, i think addiction is evil and i think that people with drug problems I, I think it should be treated as a health issue not a criminal issue and i think you know you see what they're happening happening in canberra at the moment they're changing the laws for um small amounts of drugs including cocaine and whatever to be um just changed to a fine instead of anyone having to go to court and so we're seeing this shift in attitudes about drugs. And so it'll be really interesting to see where that goes over the next um, couple of decades in Australia and, and in the world. Well, it's an interesting conversation because like, as I alluded to before, which I'm still fucking giggling about, um, having never taken drugs before, I don't know or can't speak for the experience, but I always question why some things are legal and why some things aren't. You, you look at alcohol in the way that it's, it's able to be abused and is so readily available. And, you know, everyone's been out, like everyone's been out on town and seen the effects of, you know, the abuse of alcohol in the way that people become violent and people can't control their emotions, thoughts or feelings and it, and right. it turns bad. And we have and we have more poker machines in New South Wales than anywhere in the world other than Las Vegas, right? And so when I was growing up and I was a massive gambling addict and it made me want to kill myself so many times. And so I was, and, and you see the, the, the damage of drinking. And so me seeing these, I'm like, why are those legal? And then I'm having such a positive um, time on mushrooms and uh, I'm just sitting around with my mates looking at colors and laughing. I'm like, the world doesn't make sense to me. So that, that was kind of where I started to, to, to forge my own path um again I, I, I guess not um not with the law yeah and i think it's it's scary how those poker machines are built to just get people properly addicted mm. you know like we're starting to hear a lot about that with social media now how it's rigged to keep people on the platform 
yep. for things like poker machines, you know, social media, if you spend eight hours of screen day a day, a day, screen time a day, I should say, you feel like a bit of a piece of shit. You're like, fuck, what have I done with my day? But at least you haven't lost thousands of dollars. Right. Like talk to me about the peaks of your gambling addiction. What did that look like? Oh, I would put in like 10, 10 grand in a day. I'd fucking uh, just be an absolute mess. I'd, there were times where I could only afford to pay my rent if I just, if, if someone come by, came by to buy some drugs, you know? And so it was like selling drugs at some points was the only thing that kept digging me out of the hole. And so at that point, yeah, I just, I, I that was when I kept thinking, well, the laws don't make sense because the thing that's really fucking me here is, is legal drugs is alcohol and gambling. And it's on every street corner. And we have such a culture of gambling in Australia where you go to the pub with your mates and then it's like, Oh, I'll have a cheeky slap. But like that is so dangerous for so many guys. It is a real vortex for so many Aussie dudes. Like I, I talk to a lot of my mates who have probably come through the other side of that now. Like I'm 27 and and I feel like there's a massive shift or has been in the last two years where a lot of my mates really don't drink anymore. Like maybe every now and then they'll go out on occasion and I can't drink cause I've got liver disease, but I've got nothing against people going out and having a couple of beers or, you know, enjoying a wine with dinner or whatever it is. But I think at some point you've got to take some real ownership as to what you can handle. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think that tends to be the challenge for people is like accepting that, these things, if you have enough of it, you will not have the fucking control or autonomy over your, your body anymore. Like it gets to a point where it's really detrimental. Right. So we go to pubs and you have a few beers and then we have these poker machines and it's like, you're like a moth to a light. Right. Mm. And they, they just don't have that in thing in like in America, other than Vegas, you know, if you go, if you try to gamble people at a pub or something like that, people would think you're weird. And in London, Place like that, like the, they have these mini casinos, these fruit machines, but they're completely separated from the pubs, and there's no alcohol in them. Like, so we've just created this this system with these poke, these awful machines and alcohol, and they're everywhere. And we, on top of that, New South Wales have like the highest gambling um, spins, ten ten dollars a spin, which is worse than pretty much every other state in the in the country. And it's just it's destroying lives. Guys kill themselves. Guys commit crimes. It's just it's it's absolutely fucked. So. You know, that was the kind of contempt I had for New South Wales laws. I was like, fuck you guys, your laws suck. Fuck them. I'm just going to, I'm just going to do whatever, whatever I think is right. Talk to me about the peaks of, of the dealing and obviously like the arrest story. So I found the arrest story and you know, I'm, I am laughing at your expense here, but I found it fucking hilarious. Like I could not stop laughing listening to you talk about the day that your house got raided. I just found it so fucking funny. The yeah. way you explained it. So talk to me about at that point in which you get arrested, is that the peak of your drug dealing? Um, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, they, they got me on a on a bad on a bad day, but it was like, you know, the, the peak um in terms of just how much money I was making on a weekly basis. Um, you know, what I was did that making, look like if you don't uh, know? Uh, probably making, I don't know, on average maybe like thirty grand a week profit. Um and so yeah they i was at home it was the 4th of june 2021 it was about maybe like three in the afternoon four in the afternoon i was watching a guy Ritchie movie doing like Ness never movie? ending uh it was called the wrath of man it was like some jason statham yeah. bank robber movie and i was doing like massive lines of coke i've been i've been vendoring for like two days three days 
And then I heard this loud crack noise in my front door, like just crack. And I, I thought some fat junkie had fallen into my door. And then I heard police search warrant. And I, I was just like, fuck. And then I just, I just grabbed whatever drugs I could and ran upstairs and started flushing them down the toilet. And um, then I could hear just like a million dudes in my house, just charging around and, charging up the stairs and I just ran and hid behind my spare bedroom door <laughs> because I was just like, you know, I, I was fucked up. I hadn't, I hadn't slept in days and I was just like, uh, you know, they won't find me here. So uh, anyway, they, they found me very quickly and they, um, they kind of threw me to the ground and they pinned me down and they had like knees in the back of my neck and the back of my legs. And then, yeah, one of the Raptor squad uh, dudes was like, stay down, you fat cunt. You've got a tiny cock. Um <laughs> Which I'll never forget. Yeah, and like I was fully clothed, so it was. Just he's, like, he's obviously had the worst day, and he's just looking for an opportunity to fucking get that off his chest, isn't he? I think these guys—they—they they don't know if they're charging into a house full of guns. They're probably used to like raiding like bikies and like you know Middle Eastern gangsters with guns, and so you know they're, they're so hopped up on Red Bull and whatever the hell they're having when they charge into these houses, and then it's, then it's just some fat mushroom dealer, and they're like, you know, it's just so—it's just so much overkill, but. Yeah, like, of course they're, you know, they get down the bad guy, they, they do their thing. Of course they're going to be like, yeah, say down, motherfucker. Yeah, you got a tiny cock. Like, they're just, they're just venting. So I, I don't hold any of that against them. Like, you know, I found it uh, hilarious. I got, I got a great joke out of it that I use on stage. And then, uh, yeah, so I, I just sat there and they actually issued me the search warrant. And then I just sat there as they tore the place apart. And I, I just knew I was fucked. But, it, you know, I was so cooked. Like, it just, it was kind of it felt very surreal and then yeah they, they they bagged up everything and took me to surrey hills police station and then at that point i was so deluded i still thought i was going to get bail like that that day and i and i just thought i would just go in my head i was going to get bail the next day and just go straight back to selling drugs like that's that was what i would would have done and then <laughs> yeah i i just it it I was not expecting to get refused bail. And then next thing you know, I'm going to truck to prison. And I was like, fuck, this is, this is getting real. You know, this is getting heavy. <laughs> and so, yeah, then you start to think, all right, well, uh, I better start figuring out how to survive this next step. I think I heard this on Joe Rogan's podcast a while back, but he was speaking about that there's some sort of, let's call it rule or, or theory or, or whatever it is, this thought that hitting rock bottom is sometimes the best thing that can happen to any of us because not because of that old cliche that there's only one way to go, but rather sometimes when you're at the absolute rock bottom, it accelerates the growth because you realize how catastrophic the situation is. Like it's the ultimate realization in that point in time that something has to change or your life's fucked. Yeah, like, I do mean, do you think that those months in prison were so important for you? Yeah, I, absolutely. They changed my life. I don't think that they accelerated my growth. I think they completely started it. Right. I, I think I, I was not growing as a person in any way other than my gut getting fatter. But um, being locked up uh, completely changed my life because, uh, firstly, it's it sobered me up and got me off drugs, and then I. And, and I had been escaping down a rabbit hole of drugs for so many years. Whenever anything good or bad happened, I would use cocaine. And so to be feeling raw things again and and for it to be shitty feelings, weirdly, 
actually felt good to just be like, wow, this actually sucks. Like this is a horrible feeling and to feel it and to be like, wow, this is so raw. This is so real. This is horrible. I need to do something about this um, was pretty, was, was, was a, a turning point. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I have a podcast where I talk to people all the time about um, that, that exact point is that um, crisis points sometimes uh, are a changing point for people that if they didn't have that crisis point, they, they may, they may not ever um, change things at all. And I, and I believe that for myself, I, I think that you don't realize so many things about yourself until you're up against the wall. I, I didn't realize um, just how uh, resilient I am and also just, uh, you know, so many things that you take for granted, you know, and I'm not talking just about family, but also just your your health um, and, and your, your intelligence and your sense of humor, just all, all these qualities that you have. Um, that that when you lose everything, and I lost my my fiance left me. I lost my dogs. I lost my home. I lost my restaurant. I lost my reputation. Um, some would say that was questionable to begin with, but I lost all that stuff. And you're like, okay, well, a lot of that stuff was a thought stuff I thought I really needed, uh, and all my money, like all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you're like, well, I've still got a lot. I, <laughs> there's a shitload I still have, and a lot of that I wasn't really appreciating. And so when you're left, when you, when you're basically buck naked with nothing but your, but, but your, your mind and your body, you're like, well, let's get back to work. What, what let's use this fucking machine that, that God gave us. Right. And figure out what to do next. And so I just started to think within myself, well, if I could redo my life, if I could start from scratch, do it all over from, from the start, what would I do? And the number one answer by far was stand up comedy. And so that made it obvious. That made it easy. It was like, well, this was the realization I needed to have a long time ago, but we're having it now. Let's start writing jokes. And then as soon as I got out, I signed up for a stand-up comedy competition and I started doing open mics and I've been doing stand-up comedy pretty much every night. Well, about five nights a week ever since. And that has completely, completely changed uh, my life and also who I am as a person. Mate, I love to hear that. It's, it's fucking so inspiring because I think that for so many people, in fact, I don't think it, I know it for so many people, we all have these incredible little talents. And for some of us, it's like yourself, it's humor. Um, for some of us, it might, it might be the ability or the knack to tell a story. For others, it might be an athletic ability, something that's linked to their intelligence or or something musical. It may be a number of different things. But we often go through life and we have this belief, which is so not true, that there is no reason or right that we have to express that ability with the world. And yeah. I'm not saying that everyone has to go out and be the next fucking Zach Bryan or Taylor Swift or that everyone has to star in a Hollywood movie or try to do that. But what I'm suggesting is that you should have some things in your life that you enjoy doing for no other reason. It doesn't have to be a career, but for no other reason than it's something that brings a little bit of joy or meaning to your life. Absolutely. But I, but I question all the time, right? It's easy for me to be doing what I'm doing now and chatting to people and connecting over conversations and telling stories because I've experienced the other extreme when my health at points in time has been taken away from me and I've realized that life's bloody short. Yep. So don't waste it. You've yep. experienced what the inside of a cell is like and what rock bottom looks like. So you've got this motivation, this drive to go, 
well, I'm going to go do something that I really want to do with my life, or at least give it the best crack. Know that I've left everything out there and trying to achieve something that's meaningful to me. But why do you think that so many people go through life and never do something for them? Mate, I, as I, I, yeah, I talk about this with a lot of people all the time. Some people, uh, uh, unfortunately, need needed to go to shit for them to really have a turning point. Sometimes people will just get to eighty and they'll have had a comfortable life, right? But an, an unremarkable life where they never really pursued their dreams, and they'll look back and they'll be disappointed, and it'll be rather hollow and the reality is if shit just had to hit the fan for them, maybe they would have, their survival instincts would have kicked in and maybe they would have done something daring. They would have done something amazing. So yeah, I, I just, I hope that people can have that, that, that realization and, and have that turning point without it, without the crisis point. But sometimes that seems to be the, the only way for it to come out. So, I mean, how do you, how do you say to someone, what you should do is really fuck up your life. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Go and do that. And then it'll all come good. Like, I don't, you know, how do you coach that? I don't know is the answer. Or you can tell people is this is my story. And maybe you need to think about, well, if you were told that you were going to be dead in a year, right? What, what would you want to do with that time? And if you can really, if you can believe, if you convince yourself that that statement's true, and then you ask yourself that, and then you, you, you'll have an answer somewhere in you. You'll have an answer about what you want to do with your time, and then ask yourself, "Am I doing that? Because if I'm not, why aren't I? Because as you said before, life is short, and if you're not doing the things which your soul really wants to do, uh, you're wasting fucking time." Mm, so well said. It, it's interesting because. I think about what you said just before where you spoke about the fact that in jail so much is stripped from you that it's really just yourself and your mind and your thoughts and and you have to work with that. I just think that so often we go through life so distracted. Like mm. I think about myself on occasion. I'm, I'm very aware of all of these things that we're talking about because I chat to people like yourself who, you know, have these very similar but quite unique messages in the way that they've experienced life and what they're doing about it. But sometimes I'll, I'll look at my phone and I'll get distracted and I click on a social media and I see what's happening there. And then I think about the next thing that I'm stressed about and the next thing that's going to take up some of my time. And you go through a day and you really haven't thought about much that is meaningful. Yeah. But in 90% of occasions, I found that when I do things that allow me to introspect and get into a place in which I think about like you said, the emotions or the feelings or the thoughts that you're having and what they mean and what they're encouraging you to do. I think that most people are just so distracted. They don't have any time in their day to reflect on where they're at, what's important to them or what they could be doing. And yeah. I think it's just important to set aside that time. Like you don't have to go to prison to set aside like a considerable amount of time to think about what you want to do with your life or maybe what you would do if you had that time back. You know, I spoke to Bruce Bryan, incredible man on the podcast a couple of weeks back now. Bruce spent 29 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. Right? Wow. So I heard him on Joe Rogan's podcast back in June, July. I would have been July and just thought his story was unbelievable. 
So this guy spent 29 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit and is just not bitter about it at all. And he mm -hmm. speaks about it was quite life-changing for him because he was not exactly heading down the most desirable path before prison, regardless of the fact that he was um, convicted for a crime that he was innocent of. But rather, what happened in prison was he was given this abundance of time in which he chose to educate himself, engage in introspection. He chose to be better, not bitter. He chose to use time and allow the time to serve him as opposed to just serving 29 years behind bars. I mean, he's very optimistic, obviously. I mean, uh, <laughs> and I'd prefer to have that lesson in one year rather than 29, the poor bastard. Um, For sure. I, I was also like him. I was also very innocent myself, uh, actually. Yeah. <laughs> nah, <laughs> not really. I was, I was heaps guilty. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a, that's a tough way to go, uh, man. Like, yeah, that's, that's a very, very expensive lesson. That poor, that poor bastard. Oh, well, I hope he's thriving now. Mate, he is. He's doing incredible things. And I, I think it's a real testament to him because I, for one, can say that with almost certainty that I would not come out come out of that experience the way that he has. So, you know, it's a real testament to his character who and, and who he is. You know, it makes me think about um, something I've heard from Ricky Gervais. You know, for most people, they would know Ricky Gervais through his comedy, through shows like The Office, through, you know, the many incredible movies he's done and all these speeches that have broken the internet and, you know, these shows that are now really well known across the globe. But Someone like Ricky Gervais didn't actually break fame until the age of, I think, about 39 when mm. The Office got picked up. And I didn't even know this. Ricky Gervais is my favorite comedian and one of like my dream people to interview on this show because I just think he's, he's got an incredible view and perspective on life. Now, I didn't know that Ricky Gervais for a long time was trying to become a musician and it didn't quite work out. And then I heard about him through some of his movies and went back and watched the UK office and, and all this brilliant stuff that he'd created. And I remember him talking about when he won, I think his first BAFTA for the office. And he went back to his partner, Jane, and he said, and why didn't I do this so many years ago? Like, why did I wait so long to get into the thing that's now given me the life that I wanted? And she said, because you wouldn't have been any good at it. Like you had yeah. to experience life so that you could write things that meant something to the people who watched. And I think that's a really important point. That's, that's certainly how I feel about comedy, right? I, I've started, I'm 37, and I am starting comedy late compared to many others, but I also feel like I've started at the perfect time for me because I'm hungry about it, and I also have things to talk about, right, that I wouldn't have had when I was younger. So that's pe people are looking at it and being like, oh, wow, my trajectory has been uh, very fast, but it's like, well, you've got to look at the, the, the life story behind that uh, as well. For sure. Uh, what do you think is for you? Like if you look at, obviously you're drawing a lot from your experience through crime and prison. You know, I listened to Zach Bryan, country music artist a little bit, right? And I heard him on an interview recently. It was actually on Rogan. And it sounds like all I listen to is fucking Rogan, but there's just a bunch of relevant <laughs> things in this conversation. Um, and to be fair, he's fucking fantastic. So it wouldn't be a bad thing if I did. Um, but I was listening to Zach on his show and Zach was speaking about how as a musician, you can get stuck in this cycle where you'll go on tour for months, like for six months, you'll be on a tour where you go from city to city, perform two, four shows in a city. 
And it's almost like every night you go out, you perform and you might come back, you might have a night off, but you're buggered. So you have a day where you do nothing. Then you go perform again and you get to the end of six months and you've kind of lived the same day out, but this really hyper experience every time, but you don't really learn much more or experience much different during that period of time. And he said, it's been important for him to really go and live life when those tours end so that he has new things to write about. And I found absolutely. that really important. That, that's absolutely true because you see the same thing in comedy. You'll see comedians that spend their whole life on tour doing jokes about, oh, I did this gig last week and all their jokes are about gigs that they were at. And like that's people don't want to hear um, more than one joke about that, right? So you're absolutely right. You need to be having a breadth of life and experiences to be able to draw from in any kind of artistic pursuit that you're looking at. But uh, look, for me personally, I, I'm just at the start of a comedy career. So I, the tours, uh, I absolutely love it. Like it's so much fun to go to a city I've never been to and try and make um, strange people um, sorry, <laughs> sometimes they're strange people, but just strangers laugh, you know, it's just, it, it's so much fun. I'm about to go on like a five week different tour. I'm going to Perth and Brisbane and, um, Tamworth and Newcastle and all these kind of places. And it's like, that is so exciting to be able to go and do that. Um, and to be able to get up on stage and make jokes about my time in prison and for that to be cathartic for me and then also enjoyable for people is seems to be, it still spins me out every day that I get to do this. I'd be interested to hear about your thoughts post tour as to whether people in different areas throughout Australia have different senses of humor. They like definitely heard- do. Yeah, yeah they what, do. what's your experience with that been so far? Um, so um, Mel- Melbourne crowds seem to be a little bit more, um, uh, they, they, they like their stuff a bit less edgy, less vulgar. They like clever jokes. Uh, Brisbane, Queensland, they, they like their stuff a bit more vulgar. They like a bit more swearing. And, and um, Sydney seems to be a bit uh, somewhere in the middle of both of those. They like their dirty stuff, but they also like clever jokes. Um, I, my stuff particularly go seems to go better regionally. Like as soon as you get out of the inner city, um, people seem to like. If I go out west, doing talk in jail at Western New South Wales, Campbelltown, Penrith, I'm killing. <laughs> you know, people love it. So yeah, it's it's interesting seeing it all, and 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 that's fine. All you need, all it needs, is just some slight calibrations on some on a couple of jokes. It might be a gay joke that works in Brisbane that doesn't work in Melbourne or something like that. And that's, you know, you 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 pick these all up over time, these nuances, and that and that's uh, part of part of the the craft over time is just just understanding. All these things from from where you're playing to even um, the size of the crowd, the demographic of the audience, where you are on a lineup. You know, you might do slightly different jokes if you're starting the show or in the middle of the end. So all these kind of things are just part of the journey of learning uh, how to make comedy work that I'm that I love doing. I'm a student of it now. Yeah, I love to hear that. I have to ask, as a comedian in 2023, how do you feel about cancel culture? Do you feel like you're watching over your shoulder, or do you just not give a fuck? Uh, look, I, I don't think I, I think it's overblown the existence of it, really, um, because comics that go around saying things like, "Oh, you can't say anything anymore," it's like, no, mate, you just can't say a shit joke. If the joke's clever enough, you can say whatever you want. Um, I'm on stage talking about glorifying myself as a drug dealer, and I'm not getting yanked off stage. So um, I, I, I don't buy into this whole 
um, PC woke nonsense that you can't say anything anymore. It's like, no, there's just an expectation that you'll write a clever joke. People will will, will appreciate it uh, as long as it's clever and you're not punching down. I would would tend to think that the people who are most offended by jokes in the first place are the people who aren't there experiencing it live and have seen something out of context on social media anyways. That's, that's definitely true. Uh, yeah, that, that, that definitely is true. But, um, you know, you do see sometimes people come to comedy shows and then leave like 10 minutes into the show because they're offended by whatever there was. There's a hilarious girl that does comedy in Sydney who opened a sh- I saw do a show. We were in King's Cross recently at a, at a comedy club in King's Cross. And she was joke- doing jokes about being a sex worker and two old people got up and left. And I was just like, Firstly, it's a comedy show. It's eight thirty p.m. Uh, and it's in King's Cross. But also, like, why? What do you think comedy is? Like, it's, it's a lineup show with ten different comedians. If you didn't like a comedian, they're going to be over, and it's going to be over in ten minutes anyway. So just <laughs> sit tight. But also, like, why come to a comedy show if you can't have a laugh at uh, at different people's experiences anyway? Well, that that's the thing, isn't it? And I think when you sign up for that, you have to expect that. You know, when you're paying, it's like you're paying for the fact that you're not sure what's going to come on the other side of that ticket, but you have to be okay with it. You've paid for it. You're there. Not everyone's going to be to your taste, to your sense of humor, but that's okay. You would think that in you you would think that in theory, but then you still see people get um, have those kind of reactions, and that that's okay. They don't have to. They don't have to stay. But it's also it's weird if it's like fifteen minutes into a show and then you're already too shocked to <laughs> by the entire show so yeah but in terms of uh cancel culture uh look i think it should be there that people pe- I-, I think that there needs to be room for people to redeem themselves i think that people need to suffer the consequences if they've um found been found to have perpetrated some some pretty awful behavior but uh, in terms of just what what they're saying on stage, I think that that's overblown in terms of people getting cancelled or uh, or stopped by by the by the content of what they're saying. I don't really see that happening very often. Um, and, and the people that seem to whinge about it seem to be the ones that aren't funny anyway. Yeah, I the one thing that I found very interesting is obviously doing the podcast. I'm used to having long form conversations. So I had recently an experience. I've been very lucky that up until this point, I've had 202 episodes of my podcast released and I've had very little like average feedback. And I think average feedback's really important because if you want to grow anything, you've got to expect to get to a point in which some people don't like it. So I think that's great. But I found it really funny. I had this recent experience where I put out a clip on TikTok from, you know, Dylan and Friends or Dylan Friends, the podcast, down in Melbourne. Dylan Buckley, former AFL player. He's got a great, he's got a great pod. He'd be a really oh, good interview for you. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he does some awesome stuff down there. And I went on his show and yeah. um, we'd done like a bit of a collab where he gave me the full episode to put on my platform. And so I thought I'll, I'll get some, like, I was a guest on that show and I thought I'll, I'll get some clips and throw them up on TikTok and Insta. So I pulled about 10 clips from this interview and they all done like really well. And I don't know what it is. I think it's 
maybe they were quite visually appealing clips because they had like a nice blue glow from his studio across them. So maybe they just stood out on TikTok or maybe it was just a fluke. All these clips done really well, but particularly the last one got seen by a lot of people. Like I think 950,000 people seen this clip, right? Nice. Which and then what, big... what was the hate? What was the hate? So here's the funny thing. So I have cystic fibrosis. So when I talk about my story, a lot of people ask me about that. Now, I was talking about on this podcast, a particular moment where I experienced my first lung bleed at 18. And at this point, I'd been told that if you're ever coughing up copious amounts of blood, you're internally bleeding and you could die, get in the hospital immediately. So when I experienced that for the first time at 18, I was fucking terrified. And yeah. I was talking about the, the introspection and reflection that happens whilst you're going towards the hospital and you're questioning, questioning whether you're dying. And, you know, thinking about life at 18 and there was supposed to be this wholesome message on the other side of it that like, I learned this incredible lesson, which is a Confucius quote that every man lives two lives. The second begins when he realizes he has just one. And I tell that story on stage. I tell that story when I go on a lot of podcasts and it's, it's very moving, but it's often very moving when it has the context of, I have cystic fibrosis, the clip. Yeah. didn't. So the clip is just me talking about the first time I ever coughed up blood. And some of the comments, man, were fucking hilarious because <laughs> as you can imagine, I'm thinking in my head, how, how did they get that? And then I'm like, oh fuck, it doesn't even say that I had CF in the clip. So one of the comments was like, wow, what a fucking sook this cunt bit his tongue and thought he was dying. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. So you're yeah. like, you've got to laugh at it. But I think when, you, when you're making content or when you're telling stories or when you put yourself out there in any way, shape or form in a way in which you hope you're going to connect with people, you have to be open to that, right? You can't yeah, take yourself yeah. too serious. Wait till he gets a nosebleed, the little baby. Like, you know, <laughs> like, context is key. And that's the problem yeah. with TikToks, man. Problem with TikToks is that you go for these, like, pe people have such a short attention span that you do these micro clips and sometimes you don't add enough context and they they, they misinterpret and then you, <laughs> but at least it's good for the views, right? Oh, people for sure. People commenting, saying, like, mocking you is still good. It's still good for the algorithm. There were some, some of the crackers that made me laugh were there was um, me, like it was showing me and Dill. And one of the comments was like, these t two guys look like they failed an audition for the bug's life. <laughs> and I don't know what that means, but fuck, it's hilarious. Uh, and then um, there was another one where I seen this kid, he would be like 14 and his profile picture was like him with a can of Fosters or something like that or Tui's. And he was like, I coughed up blood three times last week. Didn't care. Just toughened up. Get over it. You can't. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, you got to laugh at it. He absolutely has to. I get so many comments on the, uh, the dad joke series that I'm, that I'm on, on Yeah Mad on, on, on YouTube, particularly because I, when I went to the Melbourne comedy festival earlier in the year, I spent like a month, um, doing gigs and, and eating burgers and drinking beers. So I put on a bit of weight. I put on like six or seven kilos. Then I shot another video. And then all the video, the comments on YouTube were like, did Andrew eat Andrew? Like, why why did he get so fat so quick? And <laughs> it's just brutal. So I'm like, oh, God, I'm not reading the YouTube comments again. Well, I'm going to potentially open myself up to scrutiny here, but it's worth sharing because I think it's funny. But my former career before the podcast was real estate. And, you know, as a young guy in real estate, you're trying to do whatever oh, you man. can to separate yourself, mm. right? Which means that you often put a target on your head. Now, when I started in real estate, 
there was like, I think I was probably like 21 at the time that I, I started to get a bunch of properties to sell and started to get some real opportunities. And I, I can see why the, the way that your mouth is smiling and eyes are moving. <laughs> you got so much shit you want to say about real estate agents, um, <laughs> but bear with me for a sec. So I started doing these property videos to sell properties. And I guess to the, the sellers, they were quite appealing because it was a, I wouldn't say at the time it didn't feel corny. It felt quite classy, but maybe looking back a little bit, I go, oh, some of those were a little bit corny, but one of them in particular, I had one of my mates who I'm still really good mates with to this day is one of my best mates, really talented videographer, cinematographer, and he would make these videos for me and they, they were edited up and shot really nice. But I guess my part to play, you've got this funny thing as a real estate agent where, yes, you're trying to sell the house, but at the same time, you're trying to build a personal brand so that more people want you to sell the house. Yes. So there's just got to, you, you feel as though there's got to be a little bit of you in the video, right? Where you look pretty cool and you look like you're the man who's you know going to do the job. And so there was one particular video where I had this house to sell and I was going to wait until the new year to sell it. We're just about to go on a Christmas break. So we shot the video. But then like two days before Chrissy, I had these two couples who I knew would like it. I took them through, ended up getting the house sold just before Christmas. So in the new year, we, instead of putting the video out as this house is for sale, we thought, well, let's promote the product so that people in the area know that I've sold it and maybe more listings will come from it. But we'll just put a thing at the end to say that it's sold. So this video went out online, right? And I'm at my barber's <laughs> getting a haircut like a week later and he goes, holy fuck, did you see you were on brown cardigan? And I'm like, what? Uh. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> right. And he goes, you're on fucking brown cardigans, Twitter. They were roasting the fuck out of one of your videos. And I'm like, you've got to be taking the piss. What would brown cardigan want to do with me? And he sent me the link and man, the comments were hilarious. So they took this video and one of the comments, I still can't, I can't not laugh about it was like, we're in like a cafe to start the video, local cafe. And someone was like, have a go at fucking Gino sipping a skinny latte, talking about a house that we can't buy over sick beats. <laughs> I was like, you got a giggle, man. But like, I got ripped to fucking shreds on brown cardigan for it. But you can't take yourself too seriously. Were they, also, get to you. were they mocking just the video in its entirety or the fact that you also put it out when it was, when the property was already sold? What was, was yeah. it like? <laughs> One of them was like, cheers, champ. That's a house we can't even fucking buy. <laughs> what a yeah. waste of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're wasting our goddamn time. Yeah. Well, look, man, I mean, I understand why real estate agents do it, but also um, they are, you can understand why people would want to tear these cringy videos to shreds because, um, yeah, you're right. Most of the time, it does look like the real estate agent is trying to do it more for themselves than to sell the house. <laughs> <laughs> 100%. A hundred percent. And so it's funny looking back and I think as a young man in your early twenties, you know, probably with a bunch of insecurities and trying to make yourself seem more important than you seem to feel at the time. Um, oh, you become an easy target for criticism, but it's funny. That's hindsight, isn't it? Well, I, I, I'm glad to see that you've recovered from being a real estate agent, mate. <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's one of those gigs that it, um, it takes more from you than it gave to me anyways. Yeah. Oh, Matt, I'm interested. We, we spoke a little bit before off mic about the fact that you're writing a book. Yes. I found that for me personally, writing's been, um, let's say quite therapeutic. Like I like it. I think it's a really good way of, for me, disengaging from a bunch of distractions, 
and engaging in something that allows me to reflect on my story, to take some real actionable insight from my own experience and to think about the way in which I want to not only share my story, but then move forward into the future. What has the experience of writing been like for you? So I wrote about 70,000 words when I first got out of prison, um, when I was in the house arrest, just, I guess, because I felt like there was a story there, but I also just felt like it would be quite cathartic just to write. And so I'd read this book by Stephen King on called On Writing. And in that book, it recommended just trying to start by writing a thousand words a day. So I did that and I found that quite a manageable amount to, to do because on a hard day, I could get a thousand out. On a, on a good day, I could smash that out. And then I felt like I had momentum. I would always stop at a thousand, even if I felt like I could write two or three thousand, just because I felt like just having another day of it marinating in my head, then the next day I could I could attack it again. And so, yeah, then I ended up with 70,000 words, but I stopped because I only, I felt like I only had half a story. I had the time of me in in drugs and in, in and then me getting arrested and going to prison, but I had no kind of redemption or rehabilitation point to the story. And so I was like, right, well, I need to kind of park this while I go out and do some living. And so that's, that was when I started doing stand-up comedy. I, I when I parked the book, and so now I feel like after the journey I've had with with comedy and and me going to like the Melbourne Comedy Festival earlier in the year and being nominated for best newcomer, um, that that feels like the finish of a story to me. So um, yeah, I'm now in the middle of just trying to figure out um, how to how to finish the book. So I've I've got these words. I need to go back and cull that and and continue to write the story and then uh, then hopefully I've got something which people find to be a, a good read. Oh, I've got no doubt at all, man. I know it's something that's going to make me laugh and and also make me think a little deeper about life. I have to ask, looking back now from where you sit today, what's been the biggest lesson for you from all of this? Like if you could go back and and teach yourself just one thing that you knew now and you know the old cliche is that you know I don't regret anything because it's made me the man I am and I believe that wholeheartedly we all have to experience things to become the humans that we're going to be um but obviously there's going to be some lessons that you've learned along the way what would they be well uh these are just two really basic ones but um that took me really until going to prison to, to fully appreciate them was just how much of a different person I am with exercise and sunlight that those two are so important for my sanity. And, and I, so that now every day I have to exercise um, because it quietens my mind and helps me to focus. And then I have to get sun because um, yeah, I, I, I taken those two for granted for so long. I was just a, a, fat drug addict sitting in the dark like a bloody vampire for so many years and then I wondered why I was in such a bad mental state but um so yeah obviously what what you said in terms of being like oh um uh, I don't regret anything because it made me the man I am today totally true but I also fully wish I had been doing both of the exercise and the sunlight uh, from a lot lot early on because um yeah, it's, they're just they're things that you hear people talk about. You're like, oh, that seems obvious. But like, yeah, do it. <laughs> I, I can't believe I, I'm just such a different person with those two in my life. And then I think, uh, what else? I, I, I guess I, I, 
could have come out of prison being quite bitter at like friends that I thought would be there that weren't. And um, but what I found was that the flip side is also true. There were people that came to support me who I never expected to be there. And so that's left me um, with a feeling of like, it's not all doom and gloom, you know, you, I, I'm not too cynical about it because I'm like, you know, yeah, some people let you down, but other people surprise you. And that's, and that's part of life. And I just have such a, a happy life now that I, I don't have time to try and uh, hang up on, to, to, to have those hangups on, on, and let negativity consume me. If I have any, negative vibes i try and just channel that into a joke that's my that's my outlet for for um misery or anger is i try and make a joke out of it and then i feel better about it and and hopefully people other people can enjoy it so that that's a, seems like a pretty cool way to live my philosophy now is always if something good happens great if something bad happens comedy right yeah, <laughs> that's like the way my life goes. If something bad happens, I'm like, I bet that'll make a great joke. So, you know, it, it's it's yeah, it's it's cool, man. I, I'm I'm loving where my life is now, and it and it's been a wild ride. And uh, yeah, I, I I hope that people can find a way to find the thing that makes their soul happy without having a crisis point. But maybe you need it. But if you can do it without it, even better. Yeah, I love that. I think to what you spoke about in terms of exercise and sunlight, as someone who for the last three and a half years is exercised pretty consistently and, and done a lot for my health. I can speak to the benefit of that. The one thing that has been the huge, I think I, I tend to exercise in the morning. So I run a lot. Yeah. And so sunlight become a byproduct of doing the running and being disciplined with that, that right. I didn't appreciate how important that was until recently. I was actually doing a bit of nine to five real estate for just a month. I've been out of that for probably now a month since I, I left that and being inside all day made me realize and being inside all day in a job that for me brought back a, a whole bunch of anxiety and just stress around it, knowing that wasn't the place for me or where I wanted to be made me appreciate how important it was in the morning to get out and see the sunrise or yep. at least just to see sunlight and be out in nature for a little bit in the mornings, like it become my coping mechanism for it. Just a bit on the face, just something, yeah. It for makes sure. a difference. Makes you feel human, right? Yeah. Like we forget how important that is just from a biological standpoint. Yeah. So, mate, it's it's been so brilliant to chat to you. You've made me laugh a lot and I could sit here and chat to you for hours, but it is a, a Monday evening, um, so I'm sure that, You'll be looking forward to putting the feet up and, and resting back for a big week ahead. I'm going to make sure that everyone has links to find you on socials for your podcast. It's shit gone sideways, isn't it? Yes, shit's gone sideways. And uh, yeah, I'm on I'm on TikTok and Instagram and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing shows all over all the time. So uh, yeah, people uh, love to see you at a show sometime. Are you coming to the gong at any stage? That is a good question. I'm sure I will do a gong show soon. Uh, I'll I'll have to let you know. I know uh, I know Brett asked me the same question, so um, maybe you guys can, can come together. Yeah, would love to. Would love to. He actually said he got up to one of your Sydney shows recently and loved. Yeah, it, he so. did. But it was a. I was trying some new shit. I didn't go very well, and I felt disappointed because like uh, you know he'd come all this way and I did like five five minutes and I kind of sucked. But you know it's <laughs> the way it goes sometimes. Mate, that, that is life, isn't it? You're not always going to be at 100%. You've got to try shit. He said, yeah. to, to be fair, I seen him, I think, oh, I might have been the next day. 
And he said he really enjoyed it. He goes, I thought it was great. He's hilarious. So that's good. Oh, well, he's just being very nice. But yeah. <laughs> it was because, you know, I'm trying to move on from doing my prison gear to doing new stuff. And uh, so that's, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of back at square one, r- 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 kind of figuring out what i what i have to say as a comedian again which is like terrifying but also fun but uh yeah it just means you you go through so you have wins and you have you have failures but that, and, and that's what with comedy you you know you have to fail publicly <laughs> <laughs> that's the pain of it. i have to yeah. say i've I got to give props to um a little fella that i see and there's a clip that's been going viral on social a young fella he looked like he was from some sort of farming family and he was on the Today Show. Did you see this clip where he's talking no. to the two hosts and he goes, he goes, oh, i got a joke for you. And they're like, yeah, right. And he goes, like he would have been, I'm not kidding, probably like seven or eight. He's got his big cowboy hat on, his big Cooper. And he goes, a vegan and a vegetarian jump off a cliff to see who hits the bottom first, who wins. And they go, I don't know. And he goes, society. <laughs> I was going to say everyone or society seemed like the answer. That's brilliant. <laughs> I was like, what a little legend threw himself out there in front of a million people and just fucking nailed it. So, man, That's it's, so um, good. it's been a pleasure to yarn. Really looking forward to seeing you to continue to do your thing. And, um, mate, we're behind you. Loving your new lease on life. And I think your redemption story is something that many people will gain inspiration from. Thank you, brother. Thanks for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. My pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of A Lot to Talk About. It means the world that you guys are in my corner, that you continue to listen to the show every week. And if you could do me a massive favor by following the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it and sharing this episode in particular with just one friend that you feel would benefit from it, that would mean the world to me and it would help the show grow. The more the show grows, the bigger the guests we get on, the more that we can do and the more we can share and support you guys, the listeners, the viewers of the show. Before I go, I want to pay my respects and recognise the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and record this podcast. The Aboriginal culture has such a rich history in storytelling and as a passionate storyteller, I really hope that the stories we share and connect with on the show can allow the many cultures that now call this beautiful land Australia their home to come together and continue to respect the stories and the culture that make this the land it is today. Thank you so much for tuning into A Lot to Talk About. I'll catch you next week.